0: This is a fun story. There's, there's not many moms involved, but, yeah. I'm going to plug my mom anyway, because this one's recorded. My mom's the best. <laughs> if there was a mom competition, she would win. I think I have to say that. I th- I'm biased. <laughs> okay, I'll start out with a story. I This story is pretty fun, because has to do with climbing. I was climbing in Alaska on Denali, and uh, I was at 17,000-foot camp, and I look out my tent flap, freezing cold, and the weather looks good. I was like, sweet, I'm going for the summit. Here I go. And my team was like, no, we're not going. We heard a bad weather report. We're afraid that the weather's going to be bad. And I was like, oh, looks good to me. I'm going. So I went... I made it and then I skied down, but the team stayed and they, a couple of them made it to the summit later, but then a storm came in. I was already off the glacier. I was like, I'm getting out of here, and uh, the storm came in after I was already off the glacier and it actually almost killed them and like 20 other people, um, but their fear was almost their demise. Does anybody know what FOMO is? Hashtag FOMO, fear of missing out. It's an acronym, fear of missing out. It's it's what I get when I'm bored. It's not a rash. It's an acronym, um, but it's a really millennial phenomenon. It's this this thing that dictates millennial relationships. So my generation and younger. Um, but this the main motivation is actually fear. And. We as a culture in general, we've been trained to rely on technology or or science or whatever instead of our friends. And our friends just become a mean to an end, and that end is usually just fun or something. Um, we rely on technology, science, maybe the medical industry, maybe money or security, some sense of security, or whatever else. And we don't rely on each other. A lot of this is chemical, so... Um, Or neurological, our pathways get rewired and we start um, operating in this fear and this paranoia and we have no ability to empathize or we have no ability to even think creatively or anything like that. Um, And then our interactions with other people are always on our own terms. We always emphasize self-care over caring for the other. Fear is really driving our culture right now. I mean, if you sit down and watch TV or any advertising at all, any marketing, ask yourself, is this based on FOMO? Is this based on fear? Fear of missing out or fear of something else? Maybe sickness or whatever. It's funny, I cannot, I can't even watch TV because... (laughs) But our politics are also based in fear, right? They try to get votes based on motivating you with fear. Usually if we act on fear, it's destructive. I would even go so far as to say acting in fear is, is sin. It's not acting on the mercy of God and his love towards us, that's for sure. So this passage that we're going to go into today is all about this. So we're going to do like a 30,000 foot Mach 10 flyover of a lot of stuff, but we'll actually get our hands dirty and land in some stuff and you can look in your Bibles and actually see and get go in there. And I'll keep talking and you keep reading. So in the beginning, in Genesis, Adam and Eve rebel, right? We all know the story. But this, and this rebellion is personal. So it affects their personal relationships with God and their personal relationship with each other. They start to cover up their differences and everything. So there's this personal rebellion. Then there's Babel. Move on a little bit further in Genesis. There's Babel or Babylon. And the foundation of this city is this rebellion. And it's kind of this collective rebellion. They use this technology that they have, this new technology, the brick, and they try to build themselves up and make their own names great and define good and evil for themselves, which is what Adam and Eve tried to do also. So there's a sin pervading the story. But then in Genesis 12 with Abraham, we get a little glimpse of God's rescue plan to get rid of this sin, this destructive stuff. So then we move on. We'll move on to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh in Egypt, in the start of Exodus, Pharaoh's the worst guy in the story up to this point. He's a bad dude. He has a certain rebellion too. His his rebellion is kind of a collective rebellion also. Um, It's this rebellion where his nation's identity which is wrapped up in his person it's taken the place of god pharaoh says basically i don't have a god over me telling me what good and evil is i am god i'll define good and evil for myself for myself and then it's so selfish that slavery and genocide become the right thing to do this decision to murder babies is based mainly in fear he's afraid that the israelites will become too strong so we see Pharaoh's evil, but we also we get to see God's faithfulness in redeeming this, this group of slaves. And that's where we come out of this passage. So that's what this passage comes out of. This is the trouble that Israel just got out of this evil and destruction. They, God rescues them, from this, rescues them from this, and they sing this song right on the other side of the Red Sea. They start worshiping God, and this is the first worship song in the Bible. And they depict God as a warrior in the song. We don't really think about that that much anymore. So, God's a warrior. To what end? Is he violent? The purpose of him being a warrior is to rescue the oppressed from an evil empire. He's a rescue warrior, he's also deeply involved in this struggle. He's not way up above looking from outside. He's in it, deeply involved. To risk a medieval romantic metaphor, he rescues the damsel in distress. And then Israel, as they're leaving Egypt, they start grumbling. And this makes us ask the question, so is Israel's heart just as hard as Pharaoh's? It's kind of this foreshadowing. So on their journey to God, they're going to Mount Sinai to meet with God. He's there on the cloud and crazy stuff's going on. But they're looking back towards Egypt where they were slaves and getting murdered. They know it's despair. But they're looking back there longingly. They're afraid they might die in the desert. It seems like trouble is brewing. Because fear, this fear is festering. So let's dive in here. Israel's rebellion in thirty-two Exodus 32 through 34. There's those three chapters. So the buildup is, Israel gets to Sinai, God's there, there's lightning, thunder, they're freaking out, their eardrums hurt in chapters 20 through 31, and they hear this covenant from God. God's like, these are the terms of the relationship that we're going to be in. And they say, yeah, sweet, sounds good. You got us out of Egypt, we'll, we'll do that. But they're afraid. They go, they go Moses, you got to go talk to God because that is freaky, man. That cloud and the fire and the lightning, I can't handle it. They're afraid God will consume them. And that's also foreshadowing. But this, this language that is used when they meet God at Sinai is this romantic proposal. So both parties know the terms of the commitment in the relationship, and that commitment is heavy. I recently got married, and I was like, I got the ring, and I was like, whew, okay, life's going to be different. <laughs> but it's the best commitment ever, and Israel knows this too. It's important to realize that the narrative preceding the one of the golden calf, which is Israel's rebellion, is this initial wedding ceremony of Yahweh with Israel and then this relationship is solidified as God establishes the covenant and he'll send his presence among them in the tabernacle right think of the cloud and the glory Israel Israel's identity is bound to God's presence their survival even depends on it, on God's presence. So in Torah, in the first five books of the Old Testament, Israel is God's bride. Just like today, the church is the bride of Christ. So let's dive into 32, Exodus 32, 1-5. through 5. You can look at it electronically or on paper. There's still paper stuff around, and you can use it. So this narrative begins it's basically saying meanwhile while Moses is up on the mountain with God getting these terms of the marriage meanwhile he's in God's presence meanwhile Israel freaks out they say i don't know what happened to Moses he's probably dead by now we don't even care what do we do we're afraid we're afraid we might have pissed off the gods of Egypt or we're afraid Moses was the guy who saved us, not God. And we don't know what happened to him. So the people quickly lose patience and faith in Moses. And Moses is this mediator that God has set up. He's up on the mountain. Meanwhile, they show a willingness to commit adultery against God during a period that should have been as celebratory of this new relationship as a honeymoon. They say, we'll make this calf. And worship it. So they disjoint God's involvement in delivering them from Egypt and Moses' mediation, and then they attribute it all to Moses. Then they become afraid and ask for a visible sign of an invisible deliverer. They're trying to establish God among them on their terms, they're trying to get control because they're afraid. And this is indicated by Aaron's declaration when they make the calf. He fashions it right out of gold. He carves it and stuff. He made it. And then he says, okay, this is a day, the feast that we're going to have, the party that we're going to have is a day to God. The significance of this sin can't be overemphasized because Israel rejects God and God has done so much for them and provided laws and provided symbols to strengthen their relationship through Moses. So their worship of the calf is so offensive to God because they swap his presence and their identity as a result for this, like, cud-chewing, methane-producing chunk of meat. They wish to gain control and secure their own existence, and that's what the calf symbolizes. They're trying to create their own safety. Sounds familiar. All aspects of the covenant have been abandoned by Israel. These aspects are the authority of Moses, the signs in the law, and God's presence as a result have just been chucked by the wayside in this symbolic act act of worshiping the calf. So Moses is up on Sinai, ready to bring down the marriage contract, and Israel's already committing adultery. This image is reinforced by the Hebrew word used to describe the revelry they indulge in this party, as a, in this celebration of the calf. The same word is used referring to sexual play in Genesis twenty-six six through eleven. So this is debauchery. So let's let's see how this plays out for him. This fear-based action. Seems like trouble's brewing. Turns out, so we can look at turn to Exodus 32, 9 through 10. Turns out God's pretty angry. And these verses are sometimes used to show that God, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Or the God of the Old Testament is angry and the God of the New Testament is loving. But this is actually... We have to take it in full context. We have to actually learn from these that it's the same God. This is the God of the gospel. So we take these, considering the rest of Scripture, God's anger is not only completely justified, but holy, and even an expression of love. We don't usually think about that. But any husband in a similar circumstance. Not even as bad of a circumstance. Even a husband who has like almost no sense of justice, let alone the perfect holiness of God, he would be angry in that situation. A little bit. I would be a little bit angry. If God wasn't angry to the point of consuming Israel, you could question his love even. So in a certain sense, his wrath proves his love. For sure, his anger is merited. It's just. And we know Israel have been fully and fairly warned of the consequences. According to God's anger and justice, the Israelites have to suffer an alienation from his presence. Things are not looking good for this people of the covenant. But, lucky for them... Moses intercedes. So let's look at Exodus 32, 11 through 14 here. Moses comes in, swoops in with his appeal to this covenant that God has established and God's own reputation and God's characteristics. The Israelites abandoned Moses and God, but Moses doesn't give up their cause. Is Moses acting out of fear? Moses is acting out of love. And then in 32.14, this follows Moses' plea to God, and this very thought-provoking statement comes up. God changed his mind. So some translations might say relented or softened his thinking, but... The the Hebrew is God changed his mind. So according to this text, as scripture, God changed his mind. And he'll no longer gobble up the Israelites. Apparently because of Moses' intercession. His persuading statements. This text, taken for what it really is as Christian scripture, this is our scriptures, is actually a great relief. This is a God whose great passion for his people leaves him distraught at their unfaithfulness at this crucial point in their relationship. And he's distressed. And bound by his own holiness, they have to be destroyed. But a prayer changes everything. Thank God. <laughs> Not only does this paint a powerful picture of prayer, but the theological implications of it and the following verses... Are foundational to Israel's faith and our faith. Every time we think we got God figured out, a text like this comes up and we're like, I don't know anything. Definitely God is a mystery that we can't we can't put in our boxes of cause and effect or contained in any human understanding. But what we can know is that loving prayer is important and Our decisions make a difference. God's mind isn't changed by a plea of fear, but one of love. So we see in this passage, Moses gets this image of a true mediator. Aaron failed, right? He was afraid the people came to him. They're like, we need a God, we're freaking out. And he says, give me your gold, we'll make it this thing. He confuses the popular voice with the voice of God. Then Aaron sees the people as bent on evil. He says, Moses comes to him and says, what's going on? He says, oh, Moses, you know these people, they're so bad. He's pointing the finger again because he's afraid. He says, oh, they're bent on evil. But then Moses defends them before God's hot anger. Then Moses, he excuses himself from all active involvement. Moses goes, what's going on? He's like, oh, I don't know. I just threw the gold in the fire and this calf magically came out. It's like, it's like when I was two and I'd be like, I don't know how the lamp broke, mom. It just magically fell over. I mean, he's acting, that's what fear makes us do. It act, makes us act like a two-year-old. But Moses puts his life on the line for Israel's sake. Aaron was too weak to restrain the people. But Moses was strong enough to restrain even God. So, uh, things are kind of looking up for the Israelites, right? Well, let's move on a little bit and see how it goes. So, in Exodus 32, 15 through 30, there's this passage where Moses loses his mind over what's going on. He smashes the commandments, right? He's like, this covenant is broken. He gets really mad. He says, everybody who's on the side of God, come to me. They all rally to him. There's Only, only the Levites do, this tribe. And they go through. He says, okay, we've got to go wipe out a bunch of these people, these Israelites. There's a lot of different stuff said about these verses, a lot of different interpretations, a lot of questions. One thing that we can all agree on is that just like Israel, the consequences of our sins are definitely complex and unavoidable but there's hope for grace so this tension is building because the people and Moses and God know that Israel's survival and identity depend on God's presence and that's been compromised they blew it Moses goes back up the mountain he says okay maybe I can make atonement make atonement with God for them And then God says, he says, I I can't dwell with them anymore. It'll be too dangerous for them. If I'm with them, they're going to die because I'm holy and they're not, obviously. And they'll burn up. And he'll punish them further. And this punishment is this absence that that God leaves instead of his presence. He says he'll send an angel with them, but it's not him. It's not his presence. And that's in chapter 32, 33 through 35. Then we move on to Exodus 33, chapter 33. Look at verses 7 through 11. Really 9 through 11. Focus on those. This passage kind of interrupts this narrative. So this flow of the story is going through, and this passage comes in, boop, and you're like, what the heck is this? And people are like, well, it's you know edited later, whatever, but... The theological meaning is really important. It has to do with this tent of meeting, which isn't the tabernacle. The tabernacle's in the middle of the Israelites. Tent of meeting's way out, outside the tent, outside the camp. The Israelites are in this despair, this punishment. This is worse than death for them. But God is showing mercy and He gives them guidance at this tent of meeting. He's with them even at a distance, despite their punishment. So in the depths of this sin and consequence, God still makes a way for them to know him. So this is a little hint of mercy. And that's why this text is important in there. Even though it inter- interrupts the flow of narrative, it's important. This, so God's ex- extremely unmerited grace follows this. Moses again asked God, For his presence. And they know it's impossible. Moses, God, and the Israelites. But the power of prayer is again affirmed in verse 14 when God agrees. God, in this simple promise of his presence, is starting to give the Israelites back their identity, their mission, and their life. And this is another hint at what God is going to reveal about himself later on. In this outpouring of grace, God's just starting to flow out grace. Moses asked for more. He He asked to see God in his fullness. This is a bold move. He's not acting out of fear, Moses. Fear isn't really a factor for him. Because for Moses, the epitome of God's goodness and mercy is to see him in his fullness. And this is impossible to fully experience without dying. But in another expression of mercy and grace, God makes a way for this to happen to some extent. Right? He says, Moses, you, you can't do that. You'll die. But we'll shove you in this crack in the rock and I'll hold my hand over you and you can see my back as I pass by. and he sees God. And since Moses is the mediator for Israel, this will lead to grace for the people too. In this epiphany, in verse 22, we see that goodness is the most beautiful thing in the world. What God reveals about himself is this glory and beauty and goodness. This is the beauty and goodness that Fyodor Dostoevsky would say is the beauty that saves the world. And then God reveals his character. This is the longest part in the first five books of the Old Testament, the foundational text of our faith about what God says about himself. So Aristotle would say that God is giving a glimpse of his essence in a new sense, since Israel up to this point has only known him by his accidents. So what he has done or his deeds, and they have to try to figure it out. But now, no interpretation is needed when reflecting on God's traits, because God said it about himself. And these traits are mostly, we could sum them up as compassion and mercy and forgiveness and justice. He's definitely not limited to these traits, but since this text is so unique in Scripture, we should definitely give the most thought to these traits. This is how God is revealing himself to us. So in this text, we see, despite our greatest sins against God, he'll provide a way to make his presence dwell with his people. And, you know, some might take this as permission to live carnally, but further on in this text, in 34, 11 through 26, God leaves no room after this restored covenant for any further adultery with him through idolatry. Just like, Paul says, does that mean we go on sinning? No, of course not. So as a response to his great grace upon previous grace, his people are to live lives that are dedicated as a community to serving him. Trusting him. His people, through his provision and forgiveness, have come full circle back to ones that are to live in a community that's aware of his presence in every aspect of their lives. Every minutia of their life is God's presence. And then Moses is restored as the true mediator and authoritative. When he sees God and he comes back and he gives them the words, his face is glowing, right? And in that single moment, Moses is restored and the covenant is restored and the relationship is restored and Israel's identity is fully restored. Their abandonment of Moses, and therefore God and God's covenant, have been fully restored, but not without consequence. Their identity as ones who dwell where the presence of the Lord is will now continue among the nations around them with Moses as their mediator. They only have to trust and not fear. So tying into the whole canonical context, the whole Bible and the New Testament as well, we learn in Matthew, especially in Matthew, Matthew portrays Jesus as this new, better Moses. So we learn Moses is preparing the way for this perfect mediator who's Jesus. And we learn from Moses also that the greatest gift you can give the world is your intimacy with God, God's presence in your life. And Jesus is this perfect mediator. And then he sends his spirit. And the spirit brings what? Fear? Freedom, confidence, in community, love, right? And then, trusting Jesus' love, we can act in love to one another. So we want to meet with God, we want to be in God's presence. But in what ways are our our terms thinly veiling idolatry. Israel acts out of self-care, defining the terms of the relationship based on fear. They abandon loyalty and they abandon the relationship because of fear. It's central and foundational to Israel and the church's faith that flagrant disobedience, unfaithfulness, and rebellion is always a threat against God's story of redemption. And the story of the calf shows us that religion itself can be the very means of disobedience. That's what it means when, when Aaron made this calf and he says, Tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord, but it's actually disobedience through religion. We're never immune from this basic temptation because it's, it's fear-based. It's this trying to gain control by our own selves through this religion. But this story is also a testimony of God's forgiveness. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament, a God of grace. Grace is weaved through this story at the core. Israel and the church have their existence and their identity because God picked up the pieces. The people of God, from the very beginning, are the forgiven and restored community. The foundation of the covenant in the Old Testament and the new covenant, which Jesus brought about, was above all divine mercy and forgiveness. Even the giving of the law is God revealing himself as merciful, merciful, Gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and steadfast, steadfast love and covenant faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is the essential message of the gospel. It didn't have to wait for the New Testament to proclaim it. It was fundamental to the Old Covenant from its very beginning. So, this passage and other Old Testament passages, like uh, Abraham interceding for Sodom, these pave the way for the New Testament concept of Jesus as the true mediator between God and man. And we see in this passage God both judges and forgives. He's merciful and gracious, but won't clear the guilty. There's this tension. One doesn't outweigh the other. This is the essential paradox of the Hebrew faith and of our faith. So this biblical approach to sin and forgiveness is this tension between a God who judges and forgives. God takes Moses' prayer seriously and this loving prayer heals this relationship after fear wrecked it. So through prayer and God's grace upon grace, we can operate in love Because we have a mediator who's making it safe for us to be in God's presence. And then we can make a safe space for people to be with and for each other. That's what this community is. Part of that is bringing justice. So there's that tension. We have to trust the Holy Spirit to guide our decisions and our judgment when we call out sin in the world and amongst ourselves. Always in love and mercy. Never out of fear. Of sin, And if intimacy with God is the greatest gift we can give the world, then His presence on His terms frees us, actually, to be with and for others. Those are His terms. So this text helps us reflect on how fear makes us dictate our relationship with God and others, on our terms. And in our attempts to control safety and security, our fear actually destroys us. Our fear has to be removed in order to live our identity. How do we remove fear? We learn in First John that the opposite of fear isn't courage, it's love. Our identity is the presence of God. And his terms are the covenant fulfilled by the person, Jesus. God's terms are Jesus. And Jesus never operated in fear. He was never manipulated by fear. Hopefully we can operate more like him in every minutia of our life. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for making the first move and revealing yourself to us, and we just ask that you would do that more and more, and thank you for this book that we got, this text that's been passed down to faithful people for so long, and just help us learn from it who you are, who we are, and what we're supposed to do in this world And be with us as we go, in Jesus' name, amen.